Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. What is happening, Post Shifters? Welcome to another episode of the Post Shift Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Sean Sewell. Um, today is actually a fun one because, well, every day is a fun one, I suppose, um, because this was actually, Haley Forrest was actually my one of my very, 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 very first podcast uh, interviews. I did that at San Antonio Cocktail Week last year in uh, 2019. Um, but the thing is, is that I butchered the audio and completely screwed up the audio when I was post editing was like because it was my first time I was like I just butchered it and I couldn't use it I couldn't use it anymore at all <laughs> and so I ended up having to scrap this amazing interview that I had with Haley at uh, in San Antonio and so this was sort of my reprieve my uh, retribution if you will um, I really hope you enjoy this episode uh, it was a great live stream um, if you go to the blog you'll always have an option to do audio or video pick and pick and pick whatever works for you. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode, guys. Um, I'll see you soon. Bye. Hey! How are you? Well, you know, living the dream. <laughs> How's things changed for you uh, with everything going on? I mean, I don't really leave my apartment. <laughs> you stay at home with the cats? Yep. Uh, you will. You, there will be appearances, I'm sure. Uh Tilt definitely likes. I had a training this morning at one point. I was like, This is my cat. You've already heard him, so now you should beat him. Um, so, you're doing, are you doing okay? Before we get started, because there's so much to get through, right? Um, and catch up on. I'm just, I've got to do some do text technical things because this, this streams out to uh, uh, five, four different platforms, okay? Jesus, all at once. Okay, you're being all tech savvy and shit. <laughs> I had to, I adapted I had to I had to adapt and overcome adapt or die uh, uh, nope I don't want to do that just a couple of buttons and then away we go bop, 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 bop. okay and then I'm just gonna go to Facebook super quickly. As you do, and go public, so people can ask questions. Questions. Oh yeah, I have. I have. So right now on my screen, I have you right here. I have uh, restream chat right here, so that can actually people can comment on the live stream as we go. So I get live chat updates. Um, and then behind the screen that I'm looking at you for is my live stream screen, which, uh, is fun too. So yeah, you know, the usual, obviously, uh, obviously. Um, so how have you been? All right. It's, uh, it's been weird. You know, it's, uh, my boyfriend came down right before the beginning of all this and he was going to be here for four days. And then lockdown happened. So then he was here for seven weeks. <laughs> and I mean, then he went back to Boston. He was gone for a week and a half. And he's actually back now for like two days. And it was one of those things where we're like, can we, can, should we do this? And we're like, I fucking miss you. Like after not seeing each other for, you know, after being used to seeing each other all the time. We're like, yeah. So I'm I'm fortunate enough at home. I have my basement suite downstairs, which is my office. So I have two separate office rooms um, yeah. from the house. So the wife is directly above me. She's still working full time on oh, her wow. desk, and then 
Uh, she's an office manager for a law firm. Okay, yeah, so she could do Which is a super overly simplified job description for what my wife does. Um, it happens. And then my nine-year-old daughter's still upstairs too, which I have to remind oh her every time because her feet are about the size of my hand. So she's definitely, she's like four foot four right now and she's nine. Yeah. So uh, I have to remind her that elephants stomping across the floor upstairs is not cool while I'm doing live streams because her feet are just like, yeah. it's like having like flippers on. They just, they just sway at the ankle and slap on the floor. So that's kind of how it sounds. How are, uh, how are you guys doing homeschool? Hey. Are you guys doing homeschool for her? Yeah, to a degree. She, get, she, does, she still does girl guides by Zoom and she still does some teaching stuff by, by Zoom and stuff like that. But she pretty much keeps to herself and does her stuff. But I'm really looking forward to this all being over. Yeah, preach. So... Um, the funny thing is I was thinking about this today because I interviewed you, ju- well, a year and a bit ago at San Antonio. Yeah, I was trying to remember if it was this year or last year. It was last year. Oh my God. <laughs> and you were officially my very first interview for the Post Shift podcast. Aww. But then I completely butchered the audio and had to throw it away because I couldn't keep it. And I was so upset because it was such a great conversation. But it yeah, taught me. I remember me- us just like gabbing away and having a wonderful time. <laughs> It taught me to save my raw audio before I went tinkering with it instead of keep saving as I was tinkering. Cause once you save and you've tinkered, it can't go backwards. Um, so I'm yep. glad that we can do this again. Yeah. Um, how about you start off by introducing yourself to the world? Hello world. Um, <laughs> uh, my name is Haley Forrest. I am the U S national brand ambassador for Italicus Rosolio de Bergamotto. So how long have you been with Italicus now? So I was their first full-time employee. I was their first employee. I was being paid regularly before Giuseppe started even paying himself. Um, so I've been with them for two and a half years, a little wow. bit more. It's yeah. kind of crazy how quickly Italicus has blown up in yeah. the market for such a short time period. It's, um, it's been really interesting. When I first started with the brand, we were doing five, seven cases, uh, nine liter cases in New York a month. And now we do, but I mean, well, now is an anomaly, but in a, <laughs> you know, uh, before this all happened, we were doing between 80 and a hundred cases pretty consistently. Wow. That's impressive. So where did you get your start? How did you get in the industry? Once upon a time, um, I wanted to be, well, when I was seven, I wanted to be a bartender. Um, my mom was good friends with a woman who was a bartender at the Ritz-Carlton in San Francisco when it had just opened in, I don't know, the early, early 90s. And we would go there. My mom would have, like, we would have tea, and my mom would have a little cocktail. And uh, I would, I learned what on the rocks meant. And I thought Ruth was so cool. And so I'd order water on the rocks and uh, like the precocious little shit I was. And I decided I wanted to be a bartender. Like I actually have my, my diary is very terrible handwriting and spelling from that time that says like, Oh, it's only 14 years till I can become a bartender. Legit. You have your diary that there's actually like, like written down proof that you want to be a bartender at seven. Yeah. I mean, when I go back to California, I have to go through my mom's storage. I will, I, I have to track it down and take a picture of it because I still have it. I know I do. You got to rip um, that out and frame that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I was definitely, I still call myself a nostalgic pat crat. 
So I keep, I have a lot, I used to have a lot of journals. I don't as much now, but like I keep, you know, ticket stubs and pictures and all that shit. Um, anyway, so then I wanted to be an actress. Um, I did ballet and dance and theater all growing up. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to be famous right away. So I need to make money and all the actresses, it's the quintessential, you know, you're a waitress and you are an actor. And I thought I might as well get really good at waiting tables. And then very quickly I realized, wait, I really like food. And I started being like the hostess who'd hang around the kitchen being like, so can I eat that? Does that need a home? Oh, you made that by mistake. I can totally get rid of that for you. Um, and then I started asking if I could help out in the kitchen. And the next thing I knew I was running a small, so I worked at the Renaissance fair. Um, and people can, you know, say whatever they want about it, but I learned so much during that time. It was, you know, a food booth that operated two days a week, you know, Saturday, Sunday, and I was 17 years old and we went through so much money and so much stock and everything had to be so taken care of because most of your staff was drunk and having, you know, me just continually asking what else I could do and, you know, sure I was drinking at the time, but even still, I mean, anyone who knows me knows I don't really drink that much. I didn't then either. But I would always be like, okay, what else can I do? And finally, one day, my the owners of the booth, or both joint booths, they asked, uh, they're like, okay, so um, this is the schedule for next week. It needs some work. This is people's availability. And um, here are the keys to the safe. We're not going to be here next week. <laughs> so at 17 years, what did you have to dress like at the Renaissance Fair? Exactly what you think I did. <laughs> uh, you know? Uh, my running joke is I was wearing, I mean, two skirts, a blouse, corset, well, bodice, technically speaking. I had a big floppy hat for a while, and then I downgraded just a little kerchief because the floppy hat and cooking just didn't make sense. I mean, imagine wearing like 50 pounds of cotton in 100-degree weather cool. while standing next to two ovens, a burner, and two steam trays. Like, I would always end up just sweating out. That's why I never really got drunk also because I would just sweat everything out. <laughs> I'd be drinking so much water just trying to rehydrate. Um, so that was the Renaissance Fair and that was my first experience of management, which it was a very, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And, but fortunately the owners of the booth had been doing it for 30 years. So they started bringing me in and being like, okay, this is cost control. This is scheduling. This is how we do labor, like labor costs and labor wages. And this is how we do specials. And this is the thought process behind things. This is how we make things stretch. Um, and it was a very crash course of, you know, on a much smaller scale restaurant life. Um, after that, I decided, all right, I'm in. And I would start working in restaurants in Northern California where I grew up and then in San Francisco. And I went to college I went to San Francisco State University, and I have a Bachelor of Science in Restaurant Management. My mom is very proud. Um, I graduated college. I nearly dropped out of high school, so she's very glad I um, ended up graduating college. And after that, I mean, the whole time, I, I loved food. I loved the cooking side of it. Like, what you're saying is I actually still love it, but it was something that I just liked being around cooks a lot more and I liked being around the food. So after I finished um, college, I actually moved to London and went to culinary school. Um, so you just dropped the actri actressing thing, the actressing oh, yeah. thing. 
So you just yeah. doubled, doubled down on culinary and, and went to London. How long, what, how old were you when, when you went to London? I was 22. Okay. So I just finished college. Um, so I, you know, did high school, did my four and a half years of university. And then, you know, about a week and a half later moved. Was it a complete, completely compulsive thing or was it something that you were sort of planning throughout university? Cause I always find like when people make not rash decisions, but like quick decisions <laughs> about where to move, it's sometimes planned and sometimes like, you know what? No, I'm done here. Well, when I was right before I turned 21, so a year and a half before I actually moved, I did do that rash, you know, I quit three jobs, cut off two and a half feet of hair, went from blonde to dark brown with heavy bangs and gave my jobs. Okay. Gave my jobs like I think 12 days notice and then left for Europe for seven weeks. Um, and while I was there, I visited culinary schools. That was part of my excuse for going. And so I visited the school I ultimately went to in London as well as another one in Paris. Um, but I'm really shit at other languages. So that's why I went to London instead. And how long and, were you in London for? Um, just shy of eight years. Oh, so you did culinary school and then you stayed. Yeah. I, um, I was convinced I was going to come back after nine months because uh, I went, did the really intensive program for school. I was in school from 9am till 7pm every day and, um, graduated second in my class. Uh, but it was so funny for me, I'd already been cooking. I'd cooked in restaurants in San Francisco and it was just like, cool. You do the thing. Like how much salt enough, you know? And I'd be watching these people who had just never held a knife before. <laughs> it was a very uh, learning experience, more of my expectations of people than it was of what I actually learned technique-wise. Um, and after I graduated, I was like, well, everyone just stays for a little while. Let's stay for at least a year. And so I got a job and I worked for the Soho House Group, which if you live in London and are in hospitality, <laughs> you will have at some point worked for the, hospital like for the Soho House Group. Um, it's just like a way of life out there. Um, what made you take the change? Cause obviously did you change from the back of house to the front of house fairly quickly or was it sort of a progressive? Well, I, it was progressive. So I actually stayed being a cook for a few more years in London. Um, so I was cooking, you know, I, I'm really good at meat and fish. That is my, my skill set. Um, but of course, as a young woman, I was frequently, assumed to either be a pastry cook or to be garmage with like cold apps. So I'd walk in looking how I do. And they'd be like, so pastry. I'm like, no, uh, I do more meat and fish. Like give me fire, give me knives. Um, that's my specialty, I guess you could say. And so I had to fight a lot in the kitchens to just to get my place. I think if I'd stayed in the U S I probably would have stayed in the kitchen because the U S had started to accept female chefs much faster than in the UK. Well, in the UK, it was still like, oh, you're the small girly one. Cool. So like every time I'd leave, if, if I went on vacation, I came back, I had to spend weeks getting back onto my station. You know, I, everyone liked to fuck with me. It was like, oh, well, she's girl. Like I was called girly chef. It just, you know, it was a really shitty, um, very misogynistic environment. Um, and not all cooks are like that. Not all chefs are like that, but it was definitely interesting to see. I remember I had one of my head chefs where I like lost it at somebody where this is going to be one of those stupid things. Everyone plays jokes on each other. 
anyone who knows me knows I don't really do jokes. I don't really understand humor and a lot of stuff I'm just super literal about. So somebody had taken the egg. So you had to put like a half, so, so like soft boiled egg on a Caesar salad. And somebody had actually taken out, like I cut it, turned to grab something, came back and the egg yolk was gone. <laughs> you, you know? And I lost my shit. Yeah, I, I mean, it's open kitchen. And I just remember screaming at them being like, I don't fucking get involved in your game. What's wrong? We're doing a thousand people in five hours. I do not have time for this shit. And even our head chef, his name was Fluffy. Um, his actual name was Paul, but everyone called him Fluffy because he had kind of Bob Ross hair, but mullety. <laughs> um, and I remember him yelling at them being like, she just keeps to herself. Leave her alone. <laughs> anyway, so I did that for a few years and I started to miss people. I started to miss being treated like an actual human being. And I transitioned into front of house again. And very quickly, I think within about six months, I was restaurant manager of a place called The Lux, which he's a celebrity chef in the UK. Nobody knows him here in the US. His name is John Turode. Um, he was on the original MasterChef. He created that show out there. Um, so I was a restaurant manager for him. And that was also a very learning experience because my GM quit after I'd been there for two weeks. And so I suddenly had to learn everything on my floor, things that I didn't even know how to do. I didn't know the systems. And from there, just kind of followed. Like, I worked there for a year and a bit, and then you know, worked around London, a few other places. Um, and as this was happening, I like cocktails. <laughs> you know, I, I had already in San Francisco talked my way into a bar backing shift when I was underage at a dive bar, um, a place called the Annie Social Club, which is no more. Um, but I'd always wanted to do it, and I always found it interesting. And when you're running restaurants, you obviously, you have to know how cocktails work. You know how to have to know how to bartend. You have to know how to do any position in your restaurant. And I also dated a lot of bartenders. So I would hang out in the bar and inevitably learn things. And, you know, I'm an inquisitive human. So I like to know how things work. So as this was all happening, I was getting really burnt out. Um, like, I don't want to tell, say, like, oh, my industry experience in London was shit, because that's really not, like, there's a lot of really good highs. Like, I, <laughs> I know, I'm saying this, I'm like, <laughs> it was, woe is me, everything's <laughs> awful. No, um, when I was working in front of house, the last job I had, uh, I, I was going through a lot of personal shit at the time. Um, I was really depressed, and the winter blues are a real thing. And my boyfriend at the time was like, we thought he had lymphoma and I'd been on unemployment for a while and the government decided they want it back. I mean, it was one of those like perfect storms of like, I definitely broke down crying in the middle of King, King's Cross Station. Like, bad shit. And my boss said to me that he was paying me to smile. And I remember just being like, you will die a very slow and painful death, but not by my hand. Um, and so I put in my notice and I decided to try writing instead, which is where a lot of people in the like international world know me from is I became a food and drinks writer. I was working, I've been kind of doing stuff on the side with Thrillist, which most Americans know. And now a few other people know as well. Um, I had started doing a lot of their like London roundups and, stuff like that. This is back in like 2012, I think. Um, 
And I decided then to just focus on that. And I started working with a company called Barchick, which was like the cool, they called like, they were the cool people. They were the best wing woman you've ever had, I think was like their tagline, where they had this incredible database of bars from around the world. So they would have city guides. Um, at the time I worked with them, there's about, I don't know, 65, 70 city guides around the world. So you could be in Beijing, you could be in Mexico City, you could be in Stockholm, you could be in New York. And if you wanted to know what bars to go to, they had a search function where you could say like, oh, I want daytime vibes, or I want a place I can go with my mom, or I want to go on a like sexy date or a work meeting. Like you could toggle it very distinctly. And so I started working for them and I was their bar liaison because I would be sitting there in the office, like kind of minding my own business. I don't really know these girls. And someone would be like, Oh, does anyone know the bartender from like the bar manager from happiness forgets? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's Alistair. I live two doors down from the bar. And then, you know, they'd be like, okay. And then, Oh, does anybody know the person here? I'd be like, yes. So like, and then someone would go, Oh, how many drinks can you get from a bottle? between 12 and 14, depending on your spec. Like, how do you know all this? I'm like, <laughs> kind of a geek. <laughs> like, I look, I look put together, but uh, I talk to a lot of people and I like to know things. I like to know things. Is that, what is it that Tyrion Lannister? I drink and I know things? Yes. Yeah, I drink and I know things and I talk to people. I think because the writing gig... I think we, we first met at BCB 2015. Yeah. I think and I think that was sort of what you were, that was your profession at the time yeah. was writer, food and beverage drinker. So how long were you writing for? So I started writing in 2012, about five years, probably five, six years in total. Not long, but it was something that because I had my US connections and I had my European connections and then somehow Australia as well. And a little bit in Asia, although Asia was definitely a harder area for me. Um, I also am very well connected. I call them the old guard of bartenders. Like in London, I happened to live, my first apartment in London when I was 22, a little baby chef, was across the street from a bar called the Portobello Star. And it was uh, owned by a guy called uh, Jake Berger. And they now have Portobello Gin, and the star is actually not there anymore. But this was when a lot of very eventually influential people, they worked all in that area, and they all hung out there. So I just got to know them. And then, you know, the first guy I dated was the, um, the bar manager, the GM of Milk and Honey, and I met him randomly at a club. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like shit like that. I was just in the right place at the right time. So I knew a, I had a lot of really great contacts. Like I, I have a really great network as, you know, fucking wanky as that sounds. Do you think, like, I've always known you as someone who like throws kids the wind and just like, you know what? I'm just going to introduce myself to absolutely everybody. And I feel like right. more people need to like jump on that because the, the, esoteric well not esoteric is the wrong word but like the nature of the bar industry is like you'd never go up and shake hands with Jim Meehan because he's Jim Meehan like you don't do that same thing with Jake Berger like I met Jake for the first time uh, I've been a long time supporter uh, but I met him first time last year at Lisbon Bar Show 
Oh, I've always wanted to go to Lisbon Bar Show. Yeah, I walked up to her and said, hey, Jake, big fan, like, shook his hand, and away we went. I have to force myself to do it because I'm not that, like, friendly. Uh, I would say I'm not friendly. I'm shy as shit, but um, which people don't believe. We Uh, all are. We all are in our own way. I think, you know, I think that's, that's the interesting thing about, I think, most bartenders. And this really, I got hammered home of this idea when I was at Camp Runamuck, which... I'll be fair, I didn't have a great time, but I think it was a really interesting experience. But we're all weird, awkward, <laughs> And as long as we have this, like, three feet of wood and a bunch of bottles behind us, we're like, that's always, that's always how I feel. Like, always <laughs> how I feel. Give me three feet of wood, I'm good. But put me in a room with people, I'm socially awkward and have a panic attack. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's super socially awkward. Um, it's something that I... When I wanted to become a writer, I just had to jump in and talk to people and just, I'm very good at, on my business card for years, it said connector of dots. I'm very good at being like, oh, you, so you did that. Oh yeah, you used to work with that person. Oh, cool. Like I can, you know, it's like the old fucking Scottish Highlands of like, oh, you're from this village. Cool. Do you know my cousin? Like that's kind of what I do. And I'm really good at the, Oh, you're really into something. I know this other person who's working on a project that involves that thing that you're into. You two should talk to each other. Uh, and I'm not afraid to talk to strangers. (laughs) My mom, God, my mother, my mom's five foot three little blonde Dutch woman. And my entire childhood, she would just talk to strangers in line and she would just talk to people on the bus. I'd be saying, oh, mom, <laughs> I now do all those things. I, I feel like the Dutch have this very special breed of hospitality in a way that uh, it, you can understand how they became one of the superpowers of the world, like in the 1500s and 1600s, yeah. because they just are so, like the hospi- hospitality I've had in Amsterdam and stuff has been just insane. Because I remember, I come, I think I was at door seventy four, and somehow the bartender was almost mimicking my accent to a degree that I asked where they were from in Australia, and they're like, "No, born and raised here in Amsterdam." I'm like, "Are you sure?" Because your yeah, accent is ridiculously Australian. Their accents, like they mimic, they mimic accents really well. And part of why that is culturally, historically, culturally speaking is the Netherlands are one of the few countries that didn't overdub their videos. So like part of why my mom spoke English so well was because she grew up watching subtitles, like subtitles, like where was Dutch subtitles and English words, American movies. While most other countries in Europe, like Italy, Germany, France, etc., they didn't do that. They overdubbed. So that's part of why the Dutch are so interesting. So you've got kitchen experience, bar experience. You've been writing for years. How did Italicus come around? So I was on a conference call recently. We were talking about what Tales of Cocktail is going to be like this year. Uh, The virtual Tales. Mm. Um, I love education. Um, I have had, there was one Tales of the Cocktail where I went to 11 seminars it was a lot of work. Um, I was writing like nine articles. So I was just all over the place. Um, I've also been to tales where I've not gone to any seminars, but ultimately that's just, there is a perfect example. Tales isn't just about the seminars. Tales is about who you meet and the new networks and the connections and the random laughter. Okay. There's the parties too, which I don't even really go to anymore. It's the person that you run into on the street that you saw in the last three bars. And finally you're like, well, obviously we both have the same taste. 
you know, it was the first night you saw Aaron Rose, you know, when you were there at two o'clock and then when you're there at seven, they were still there. Like that, that is what tales is for me. And they're like, Oh, do you really think that I was like, I can track so much of my career from tales. And my journey with Italicus starts at tales. Um, you said that I'm the type of person who just kind of jumps into things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as you, when you said that, I was like, no, I don't. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I do. I, um, I was in New York visiting some friends and it coincided with the week before tales. And this is back in 2013. And everyone, I just kept running into like, Oh my God, are you here before tales? Are you going down? And I had to be the sad one going, no, I'm not. <laughs> and finally I was at experimental cocktail club in the Lower East side and, uh, to our Berquist, am I, I know I'm butchering his last name. He is, he is Australian. He, he has PS 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was the, he was behind the bar and I was just drunk enough to be moaning about it. And he was like, why don't you just ask Barchik if you can go? Like you, we were on the long list of um, publications that year. And so I was just drunk enough to send the email of, well, I'm here. Can I go? And they said, yes. So I had 24 hours to find a hotel room, to find a flight, to figure out what I was doing. And I posted on Facebook that I was going and Jake actually reached out to me and was like, Hey, we're all at Alibi. Come and we'll look after you. So from there, I mean, that's when I first met Cammy, uh, formerly of St. Germain. That's when I went, um, Sam, who had the blood, he was at the black Pearl at the time. And then, uh, Four, four wins who was he with four pillars whiskey and I, now i don't not sure what he's doing but like i met all these very global people and it also one of the people i met was giuseppe so i met giuseppe gallo at the launch of grand luso which was one of their vermouths which is incredible like i will just drink that like over a, a single ice cube with like a little lemon twist so good um and so we met there and then we kind of did the whole like oh you're from london oh you live in london and Oh, you worked here. Oh, I used to live around the corner. We know the same people. And so we were peripherally, we peripherally knew each other after that. And fast forward however many years, and I was bartending at Pouring Ribbons here in New York. And I was going through a bad breakup and, you know, generally losing my mind. The things you do in your early 30s. Uh, In 2017, I moved four times, just to give you an example. And I was homeless for a little bit. Uh, so in 2017, all of a sudden, I had some, in earlier, like at Tales, Tales the Cocktail, some friends of mine who are Dutch, they, work, they worked for Cooper & Barrel, which is the craft importing arm of De Kuiper for the Netherlands. And I think they do some stuff in Germany as well. Um, and I knew her, <laughs> you know, it's like, I knew her because I was essentially set up on a blind friendship date with her where someone was like, you two would get on really well. And we do. Her name is Laura. I love her to bits and pieces. Um, and she called me. She's like, I remember I was at Tails. She, and she's like, hey, do you have a minute? I need, I need a favor. I you know, went to the back hallway. I'm like, what's that? She goes, are you working at Tails? You know, I don't have a job yet. She goes, oh, good. I really need your help. She, Royal Dutch, which was the American importer, part of the same company, the American arm. Um, they were doing a, a tasting thing where they had taken over a bar and they were doing it for three days where they would have a chef preparing food and bartenders preparing drinks that matched the food or rather the food matched the drinks, you know, pairing. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, 
And Laura, who had organized the whole thing, three of her seminars had been accepted. So she was gone. She couldn't do, be there for most of it. And their um, sales and marketing manager who would have normally done it had hurt her back and couldn't really move. So they need somebody to basically manage it. And uh, Royal Dutch was the importer for Italicus. So I spent three days uh, running this really exciting and not very organized <laughs> uh, pop-up, which anyone who's there, there's definitely, like, all of the bartenders who were there will all look at each other and go like, oh, we've been through the wars together. It was things like they didn't know, they hadn't thought about who was going to be clearing plates or checking people off at the door. Mm. There was a glass washer and we were doing a basil smash. No. Oh, yeah. That's at one point... Horrible. This guy, Andy Nelson, who was doing some other work with them, he walks in and he's like, hey, Haley, you need anything? I looked down and went, I need you to go to Walgreens and get one of those, like, strainers for overdrain. He's like, what? And he just looks and goes, oh, <laughs> and runs off. You know, it was, it was just, um, yeah, it was a lot. So from there, obviously, Giuseppe was in the building a lot because that was kind of their headquarters. Whenever any of the brands that, we, that Royal Dutch was presenting – when they had some downtime, they'd be in our pop-up space and hold meetings. So we kind of were reintroduced again there, because obviously I'd moved to the U.S. by that time. And a few months later, I got a call from one of them asking me to come in an interview. And they, I, I didn't know it was Italicus. They were looking for a market manager for the whole portfolio. And I thought that would be cool. I, don't, I never liked the idea of being just with one brand. You know, I thought, you know, I want to do more. I want to do all the things. Um, and so that was the job I was really going for. And they turned around and said, we actually think you'd be better at just doing Italicus. You don't have that much experience in sales. I'm like, okay, cool. I kind of think you want someone a bit cooler than me. Like, you know, Italics had just won Best New Product at Tails. It was getting all these awards and everyone thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> and I'm like do they know I'm not that cool? <laughs> I mean, I work at a cool bar and I know a lot of people, but <laughs> I kept on thinking they were making a mistake. And then as the interviews went on, I just kept being like, this sounds really great. Um, and at the time I was actually interviewing with another brand and they were going to move me out to the West coast. I was about to say, fuck you, New York and peace out and go back to California and literally the day that we had confirmed the contract proposal from the other company, I called my mom was like, yeah, moving to LA. It's all happening. And as this call went on, I got an email from Royal Dutch offering me a telecus and I couldn't say no. Wow. So for the people watching or listening at home, what briefly, what is a telecus? So a telecus, hold on, I have a bottle. I have a whole bunch of bottles, actually. Let's look. This is Italicus. I love it. Um, so <laughs> Italicus is a bergamot aperitivo. So bergamot is a Mediterranean citrus, which is the main flavor in Earl Grey tea. I grew up drinking Earl Grey, and I had no idea what bergamot was. Um, but as soon as I realized, I was like, oh, right. So you also see bergamot a lot in soaps and perfumes, and like lotions and bath bombs. So it's something that people are very familiar with the fragrance, but generally don't know what it actually is. So Italicus, when we say it is a bergamot 
put this right here. Yeah. Hold on to that. Well, um, Italicus is a bergamot aperitivo. So what we mean by that is it's very, it's low ABV. It's only 20%. It's really kind of light and bright, crisp, a little bit of sweetness on the front, a little bit bitter on the finish. You see it drink a lot like as a spritz. I drink it with tonic. It is used a lot in cocktails in smaller amounts because, again, it's that flavor that leaves the mind and the consumer wondering what it is. It's that thing that people go, like, I know that. Rosolio, as a category, it's actually a forgotten Italian category. It is something that predates vermouth. So the 1400s to the 1800s, it was referred to as the liquor of kings. It was something that everyone would welcome their guests to their home, like as a little like, cheers, salute, you're here. Um, or if someone was going off on a journey, they would, you know, a little bit of cheers for that as well. And then in the mid-1800s, vermouth was created, and the king offered to pay more money to people to make vermouth, and he championed vermouth as a way to okay, basically say, like, I, I no longer drink Rosolio, I drink vermouth. And then the nobles drank vermouth and then trickled down. Everyone wants to be like the king. So it completely disappeared. To the best of my knowledge, um, Italicus is the only globally distributed Rosolio in the world. So if you go to Italy, there's another one that's kind of like locally-ish, like within Italy distributed. And individual towns will have their own versions of it. So... It's very much a family recipe, that kind of a thing. Like a grandmother will have a recipe that she'll make for her family and the friends, and then she'll pass it down to her daughter and so on and so forth. And each region kind of has its more distinct notes. So further south, you'll get more, like especially along the Malfi Coast, you'll have a lot more citrus notes coming in. Like our bergamot comes in from Calabria, which is like the toe of the boot. Yep. Oh, toe, oh God, anyway, toe of the boot. Um, while further up, you'll have different spices coming through. The cool thing about Italicus is everything's natural. Like there's no artificial flavors, no artificial preservatives or colors or anything. It's a neutral grain spirit. So it doesn't need to go in the fridge because it's so pretty. Why would you hide this pretty bottle in a fridge? For some reason, the first summer I worked on this, when it got really hot, everyone started putting it in the fridge. I'm like, but it, it doesn't need to be, but okay. Uh, it's been really fun working with. It's something that, since it's such a new product, nobody really knows what they're doing. So that means anything is possible. You know, the first people I talk to, they're like, oh, that can't go with a whiskey. I'm like, challenge accepted, you know, and ended up doing like a kind of a Manhattan riff with Italicus and Angel's Envy. And I think I used like plum bitters and demerara syrup and then a little bit of like champagne on top, you know, like, and it was great. And it was loads of fun. Um, I find it goes really well with agave spirits, the kind of herbaceous things as well. So like chartreuse, absinthe, those kind of flavors go well. It really plays well with savory flavors. So for instance, with a spritz or a white Negroni, we recommend using olives as the garnish. I drink it with tonic with olives like that. And maybe that's also part of my culinary background is I love throwing salt in everything. What was Giuseppe thinking? Like I talked to Philip Duff last week about mm -hmm. doing a Geneva brand that you took global or for, for him, he's getting close, but he's working on it. Yeah. He's working on it. Um, as a Dutch person, <laughs> you know, as a, as a Dutchie, him and I will, whenever we greet each other, we do the three kisses, which is the Dutch thing. And we always have, you know, little like small Dutchisms back and forth. 
Yeah, like, I love Janine. Janine was great. What did, what did Giuseppe, what was he thinking? Like, because he had a pretty good job. He was a global brand ambassador for Martini. Like, he had a gangster job to start with. And then he decided to lean into a Rosolio that doesn't exist really outside of Italy. <laughs> and, and, and really, when you look at the packaging and everything, like, there was no small feat. And it wasn't a cheap endeavor to kick it off. No. Um, he remortgaged his house. Uh, he didn't take a salary for two years. His wife, you know, thought he was crazy. They had two little girls. I mean, it was released on his youngest daughter's second birthday. Like, there was a lot riding on this. He really wanted to take this Italian heritage that had been completely forgotten and bring it back to the forefront. I mean, Italicus is basically an advertisement for Italy in a bottle, you know, where it's the color looks like the Mediterranean Ocean. You know, it's a Roman column in shape. Like, everything about it is just super Italian. I mean, the, everything, the bottle, the cork, everything is made in Italy. Um, and it's just, that's the kind of idea he wanted to bring back some of the history that even he hadn't grown up with. It missed two generations. So for him, I think also it was a combination of wanting something that was his own. I mean... Sure, he had a really clutch job. Uh, but after a while, he's the type of person who wants to create. And being able to take something that is so close to his own tradition and heritage and give it a new lease on life was a great opportunity for him. So I think that was, that was a large part of it. So you said the, at the very beginning that you were doing training. Are you still doing training online with Talicus and stuff? Yeah, so we... Um, so as I mentioned, Italicus for the first two years in the U.S. was with Royal Dutch Distillers as our importer. And we have now just recently, as of May 1st, we are now partners with Pernod Ricard, which is super exciting. Um, I've been the only one essentially in the country. I, we had you know, a handful of people with Royal Dutch, but the only full-time person. And now all of a sudden I'm doing trainings where I did a training today with 130 people. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> and wow. I've got another one set up for... Thursday, like, you know, for this, it's because they're all the national Pernod Ricard people. Wow. Uh, we're specifically with their brand new ventures uh, division. So that's like Monkey 47, mm-hmm. uh, Del McGay, uh, Plymouth. Powers is in there, but that's because they're, they're relaunching it, rebranding mm-hmm. it, which I'm totally okay. I don't mind drinking Powers. Uh, what else is in there? I should really remember. Lillet is in there. So it's like, it's a bunch of really fun brands that are just a bit more kind of niche and cool. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing a lot of training with their team, like with the small team and with the larger team, as well as, you know, various people who just want to learn. Like there's a group of consumers out in San Francisco that they were brought together by the owner of a bottle shop. And she reached out to me. I did a little training with them. Um, one of my friends from the Renaissance fair days recently posted on Facebook that she was like, you know, if you like Bergamot, you should try this stuff. And one of my friends who knows, both of us tagged me and was like, Haley was the one who could talk to you about this. And so I'm arranging with her and her group of friends who I don't know. I mean, they're housewives in like central California, you know, who I like, they like Italicus. So I'm going to do a training with them. It's, it's been really interesting in this time trying to find a way to stay involved and engaged because as a brand ambassador, that's what our job is, is talking to people and, creating these experiences and relationships and being trapped in a what a 300 square foot apartment with my cats and sometimes my boyfriend is it's a very different experience how many so. cats do you have now 
Just two. I just have mine. Um, I had, uh, I, I, as you know, but for everyone else, I foster kittens and I volunteer in a kitten nursery with baby babies. <laughs> um, I'm actually hopefully getting some bottle babies this week. But I had a kitten named Ferrari uh, who I had since December, who when I got her, she was a little bit... Um, we called her Spicy Bitch. That was her nickname for the first, like, three months. And then she downgraded to Medium Brat. And then finally, she became mild enough to be adopted. <laughs> <laughs> so she just got adopted last week on Friday. And I've been getting a little update saying that, oh, you know, she stopped hiding under the cupboards. And now, like, so it's, I only have two. I've got my cat, Tilt, who, let's see. He's hiding right there. And then Shuffles, so he's he's my main man. Uh, he is uh, the best dog cat I've ever had. Like he greets me at the front door, and he loves to talk to me. And when I'm going to bed, I kind of like yell for him to come and like pat the bed. And he comes over and like plants himself on my chest and just purrs. And in the morning, they know the sound of my alarm, and he comes and plants himself and purrs. And you know, it's he's a good beast. So, what's the plan? post all this are you looking forward to getting back to traveling again and getting out of new york and whatnot but uh what's the plan for especially with like what you were saying earlier with uh tales of the cocktail being virtual this year like that's a that's a firstly that's a, a big just brand activation money spend budgeting that no longer you don't even necessarily spend it there anymore but also like put your, it puts eyes on a on a product especially like yours um, puts eyes on product that you may be not able to get in the usual macro mainstream. So what's, what's the sort of plan to replace tails getting bartenders to know it? So we are working with the, they're like the cultural society of Italy. It's a government organization and obviously they want to champion Italian things. So we are working with them right now to figure out exactly what we're going to do. There's been some things of like a, virtual platform type, like a virtual table, basically where all the information is there and we'll like schedule different people to be virtual and live and talking about things. I honestly don't fucking know. Like they've bandied about some ideas and some of them are like, cool. And then other ones, it's like, you know, contests and like training videos that we can put up and people can click on. I honestly don't know how it's going to work. Like... I've been on a few Zoom calls that you have multiple people and they're all kind of talking. It doesn't really work. As well as you learn, I mean, no offense, but we learn less in this environment than we do talking, physically talking to people. And like I'm right now, because I need something to kill my time with, I'm taking a couple online classes that have like all the seminars preloaded and then there's some reading. And I'll be honest, I struggle to pay attention sometimes. And it's cool shit. Like where I'm just like, like I'll just kind of zone out and realize I have no idea. And I just had to take a quiz for one of them. I thought I knew the information. I only got six. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's a lot of like theory. It's uh, morality in everyday life. So it's a lot of like, Oh my goodness. It's heavy. <laughs> super cool. I'm also <laughs> taking another one. Uh, that one's from Yale. I'm taking one from Brown, which is the ethics of memory. My Jesus. <laughs> Casual. Just, just some casual light online courses. 
Um, so, but it's the type of thing where I've definitely, I've caught myself having to rewind a lot for some of these things. So, cause if you're doing deep learning, it's just not as easy of watching a video. It's, you know, it's the thing your substitute would do when you were in high school and they didn't want to teach you, they put a, a movie. Um, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. To be do, you think, do you think tales can be as impactful as it usually is? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not in a million years. I mean, I've, I've always, like I said, I, I love tales. I've been going for years. Um, and I really want it to, and I understand what they're trying to do. But I also know that, I mean, how many people go to tales every year? Thousands. Yeah, so I think something like 30,000 or something, 30, 50. Yeah, something ridiculous. Yeah, but if you look at the breakdown of like bartenders versus consumers, bartenders, unless they're super geeky or like really like young and geeky, they're not going to sign up for virtual seminars. And if they are, it's gonna, they're not going to pay much for it. Yeah. And then if you look at consumers, which, okay, yay. I mean, consumers are the people who pay our bills, but the cocktail enthusiasts, I believe is what, what we're calling them these days. I mean, they might, you know, but I think also part of what a cocktail enthusiast goes to tales for is to rub elbows with us. Yeah. You know, is to see it in action. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know. What are you most looking forward to getting back to? Oh my God. Um, hanging out at bars <laughs> like my boyfriend and I uh, we try to do um, quarantine dates where we will order takeout from one of my accounts and we'll set up my living room we'll change the lights and light little candles and I, I have this little like breakfast bar I sit at it's my only table again 300 square foot apartment if that and uh, we'll sit on the same size if we're sitting at a bar you know, because we always sit at bars and it's something that, you know, we, we play music that isn't necessarily the music we would play. Like he, he manages a restaurant and he'll play like his restaurant playlists <laughs> where it's all good music. It's all music we like, but it isn't, you know, it's not something that is quite as tailored to us. Mm-hmm. I just miss that. I miss eavesdropping. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, because I'm by myself. 89, 90% of the time when I go to bars. And so, you know, obviously I'll chat with the bartenders, but a lot of it is just me nursing a drink and fiddling with my phone and just listening to conversations and people watching. Like, I miss hugs. (laughs) I miss, like, that kind of thing. Like, (sighs) contact. So one last piece of advice before I let you go. Um, For young bartenders out there, you, your 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 direction has always been sort of obscure in the grand scheme of things. You, your trajectory to get a job like you have now was is not traditional in any way, shape, or form. Um, no. But what's what what are the some of the core things that you would say to a young bartender who who looks up to you and says, you know what, like that's the sort of role I really want. But a lot of the times, I feel young bartenders feel like they have to change themselves. Yeah. to get that role. Whereas you have definitely lent into, and I was talking to Frankie Marshall about this the other day with um, Pinot de Charance. Like you've lent into just being yourself and serendipitously have got the job of your dreams. It's something that I've kind of talked to a few people about this, where I say, you really have to believe in what you're doing. Um, I remember I mean, we all know brand ambassadors who are 
maybe not know, but have known brand ambassadors who will start with a job and be like, whatever, it's vodka. But hey, look at me. And uh, that doesn't work. And then you also see people who change everything about them to become the brand. And like, okay, I changed all my jewelry to gold, you know, <laughs> to match the bottle. And, you know, I definitely wear a lot more blue and green than I used to. <laughs> but also, I've also worn a lot of green because my eyes are green. So it wasn't that much of a push. I mean, you've known me before, Italicus and after. Um, and I've definitely had moments of crisis of faith where I'm like, without being Donna Italicus, who am I? You know, I have this, <laughs> you know, because who I've continued to evolve to be as a person, as a human over the last two and a half years has also evolved at the same time as Italicus has, you know, and that's been a really interesting thing. Um, Find something you believe in and find something that you can connect to is definitely what I'd have to say. Like for me, Italicus is quirky and obviously, uh, (laughs) you know, it's, it's not something you can easily categorize and, it's also elegant and bright and like, I'm peppy. I don't know when I got peppy in my head. I'm still like a sarcastic goth like girl, but like, you know, it's bright and it's easy. And I love the fact that it's low proof. Like I generally drink low proof. So that works really well. Could I still work for a whiskey? Yeah, probably. Would I tailor who I am a little bit? Probably also, but at the same time. You're not going to be working out flannel. Like, I could probably never work for Monkey Shoulder. (laughs) I mean, prior to Italicus, I'd only ever applied to one other brand, um, and that was Hendrix. And I made it to the final round twice with Hendrix. Um, And I think if you look, well, Hendrix is a little bit more on the quirky side. It's a bit more eccentric, which is fine. Um, You'll find, in terms of branding, very similar qualities Mm -hmm. of both brands, where they have that kind of, classic otherworldliness whilst cool and interesting. Um, I don't know what other brands I could work for. I would be very picky. Like I probably couldn't work for vodka and that's not any shame on vodka, but unless they were to create a really great world around it, Mm -hmm. I don't know how that would work for me. Um, so last question before I, I, I got one last question. When is it coming to Canada? Soon. So we've had conversations because, um, because we're now with Perno. Uh, Perno obviously does that. So probably I want to say by the end of the year. Nice. I, I mean, obviously right now everything has just kind of come to a grinding halt. Um, but hopefully by the end of the year. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time, sweetie. It's, it's fantastic that you are my hundred and fifty fourth <laughs> episode, I think. 154th episode, and you were technically supposed to be number one. So. <laughs> I'm glad we went through this journey together. It's been great. <laughs> but it was wonderful catching up with you. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, Make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.